Well, good evening. We'll try again. Good evening. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. David said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord, even before he got there. And so no better place to be than to be in the house of the Lord, studying God's word, worshiping together, fellowshipping together. You know, I just want to encourage you, uh, as we get into God's word, stay positive. It's so easy to become negative, you know, in this world, the way things are. And I'm not saying, like, staying positive is going to change anything necessarily, but it will change you. It will change your response and your reactions to things, and it'll cause you to weather the storm and to be able to deal with things in faith and, and by trusting in the Lord. Amen? Okay, let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you as always asking that you would make it clear to us what your will is for our lives. So we study your word, encourage us, direct us, instruct us, and may we learn more about you and grow closer to you, and may we find out more about ourselves and the things that you're desiring to, to work in and through our lives, things that need to change and things that need to be encouraged and directions we need to go in, but Lord, give us your will. Give us your way. Give us your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening, I believe we will be finishing out our series of studies in the book of Jude, and that's kind of exciting. Uh, We've been in this book for about four weeks, so you can open with me in the book of Jude, only one chapter, where we left off in verse 17. Now, in this section, in verses 17 through 23, Jude encourages the churches that he's writing to to remain faithful. You know, I remember one time I was teaching in Cuba, it was back 2004, and I was teaching through an interpreter, and I said, you know, to be faithful is to be full of faith. And I found out very quickly, some of those idioms, some of those things just don't translate into another language well. The interpreter turned to me and goes, that doesn't work in Spanish. I'm like, oh well. But it works in English. To be faithful is to be full of faith. And if you're going to get through the crazy storms of life, you're going to have to be full of faith. And that is how you will remain faithful. And in this section, Jude reminds them of the apostles' prediction that their faith would be attacked. You know, I'm always amazed how people freak out and they're like, oh, can you believe that our faith is being attacked? Like, like, but wait a minute, when has that never been true? That's always been true, and especially in the first century. So he's telling telling them, you know, your faith is going to be attacked. And look what he writes in verses 17 through 19. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ told or foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit that is the Holy Spirit. You know, as you look at the world today, I mean, it's so true. I mean, dividing people, you know, causing conflict, and it's so amazing to me. It's as if the devil just needs to sort of just throw a smoke bomb and everybody freaks out, and and, and then we run around just destroying each other. It's amazing to me how we react and respond to the circumstances in our lives. Thank you. It's amazing to me because we really should weather the storm. I mean, you know, can you imagine if you were on a ship and you're on this ship and then a storm comes in and everybody on the ship starts freaking out, screaming, yelling, jumping up and down, jumping overboard? How would that be productive? Well, it wouldn't be. 
Remaining calm, remaining positive, putting your faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of a storm, that's going to get you through. So they, he, well, he wants them to know, your faith is being attacked, and the apostles told us this would happen. And so, he does not seem to consider himself, by the way, that is Jude, one of the apostles within the early church. As I've said before, he's writing as a leader, but not as an apostle. His brother James was an apostle. There were other apostles. But he's speaking of the apostles as different than himself. And he speaks of the coming mockers, the scoffers who would come in the last days. And he does this by quoting Peter's prediction in 2 Peter chapter 3. See, the apostle said this would happen. Peter did say it would happen. He wrote it in his epistle. Peter had reminded his readers of the prophet's words and of the Lord's commands, saying that, we would be attacked in the last days. Now, they were in the last days. Certainly, we're in the last days. So the next time your your faith is attacked, can you just take a deep breath and say, wow, God's word is true? Can you say that with me? God's word is true? See, that's how you take a very negative thing and turn it into a positive. Because it'll increase your faith. My faith is being attacked. Oh, God is faithful. God's word is true. I'm not saying we like it. I'm not saying you should thank God that your faith is being attacked. But thank God that he told you in advance it would happen so that you would believe. Now, Peter and the other apostles had predicted the coming of mockers in the last days. These individuals are identified by their attitude toward the truth of God's word. They deny God's word. They're identified but also motivated by their own selfish, sinful desires. And they shun the moral accountability of the, of the conscience and of the word of God. And that's how you recognize them. Their attitude towards God's word, their, their, their sinful, selfish desires, and, and the fact that they have no moral accountability or they, they don't seem to have a conscience or, a, or even any respect for God's word. This is exactly what we're dealing with, but it's exactly what the church has been dealing with for 2,000 years. It's really not that different. Then he identifies their enemies within the church as those that were predicted by the apostles. So what he's saying is, remember when the apostles said your faith would be attacked? Well, the enemies of the church, they're attacking us, and we know it's true. And and you can look at that and look at verse 19. He says, these are men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the Spirit. And so he gives us a way to identify these enemies of our faith. First of all, they divided people. Now, in the context of division in the church, this was dividing men and women into the spiritually elite and the spiritually ignorant. The spiritual elite, the spiritually ignorant. They would divide people. They'd say, well, you know, they don't really know what's going on. Those people do, but they don't. And so it created division in the church. Ultimately, that became a problem in the Middle Ages, because you ended up with clergy and laity. You ended up with a group of people who were in charge, who were the elite, and you ended up with everybody else who were not. And that permeated the church. And I say the church because it it wasn't just the Catholic church. It permeated the church through the middle centuries until the Protestant Reformation. And then even after that, there still seemed to be this understanding that there's the clergy and the laity what we need is to adopt an attitude of we're not going to divide ourselves. We're not going to look at the pastors and the leaders as different and separate from the members of the congregation. We're one body in Christ. Amen? So dividing people into the spiritual elite and the spiritually ignorant is, is, is the devil's work. 
And that's what was happening. Also, they were guilty of causing division within the early church. So they were creating problems. They were also following their natural instincts when dealing with spiritual matters. Following their natural instincts when dealing with spiritual matters. There is a great temptation for someone with any degree of ministerial experience to use their experience and their wisdom or their understanding to address spiritual problems. It it makes sense. If you've dealt with something before, your natural inclination, your natural instinct is to say, oh, I've dealt with this before, so I'm going to deal with it in the same way that I dealt with it in the past. Wrong. We're led of the Spirit. You know, I can have two people with the same situation in their life come to me and ask for counsel, and I may give them completely different counsel. Because they're two completely different people, different situations, they're different scenarios, and I have to pray and be led of the Spirit in spiritual matters. I can't just rely on my natural instincts or my experience. For example, there's some people that may have been serving in the church for six months to a year, and they want to get involved in ministry, and you pray about it, and you just feel like, you know, there's some stuff going on in your life uh, that I just sense and I observe that maybe not yet, maybe not yet. And then you have someone who walks through the door, and in three weeks they volunteer, and you put them on the schedule, and people might say, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. It's not about fair. As leaders, we discern, we pray, we make decisions. We don't rely on our natural instincts. So many churches fail because instead of praying about a situation like that, you know what they do? They make a policy. That's the natural instinct to make a policy. Fill out a form, wait X amount of days, sign your name at the bottom, and follow the procedures. That's a natural instinct in the church. Now, that's not exactly what they were talking about. I'm just talking about that as being a temptation in leadership today. But still, the principle's the same. You don't want to follow your natural instincts when you're dealing with spiritual matters. So if you're dealing with spiritual problems in the church or spiritual advice or counsel, and you rely on how you feel or how you think or what you've been taught in the world, you're going to fail. Your natural instincts will never fail to fail you. They'll always fail you because we're not going to discern naturally the work of God's Spirit. In fact, we're going to have to discern spiritually what God wants us to do. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You know what that means? Sometimes you think, oh, maybe I should go left, and and the Spirit says, no, you're going to go right. We talked about this on Sunday morning. When Paul was trying to go into proconsular Asia on the second missionary journey, and God said no. And then they tried to go into Bithynia, and God said no. And then they went to Troas, and God said, you're going west into Macedonia. You see, it's so important. I can't stress this enough. You need to be led of God's Holy Spirit. In fact, if you notice, it says that they followed their natural instincts. That was one of the other things. But you see how he follows that up? They do not have the Spirit. When you only have your natural instincts and you don't have the Spirit, how else are you going to make a decision? And this is it. Herein lies the problem in many churches. The leadership, they do not have the Holy Spirit. Or at least they're not submitted to the Spirit. So they're really capable. They're really quote-unquote qualified. And they make good decisions. The only problem is those are natural decisions, not spiritually discerned. So what I'm saying is, and what he's saying here is that 
You have to have the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you'll receive the spiritual gifts that you need to make good decisions. And you won't be led naturally, but you'll be led spiritually. So these enemies within the church, these individuals who were dividing them, these scoffers, they weren't filled with with the Spirit. They didn't have any of the spiritual gifts. They loved to think of themselves as the spiritual elite, and they liked to think of others as spiritually ignorant, but they were actually the ones that were spiritually ignorant. And that is exactly why you can go to a church where the leadership has PhDs and doctorates, and they can't discern the Lord and his decisions and his direction. And then you can go to a church where their leadership has a high school education, and they seem to always make more spiritually discerned decisions. See, it's not about education or intelligence. It's not that at all. It's not that at all. It's the Holy Spirit in your heart. They were actually the ones who were spiritually ignorant. So after having reminded them of these things... He goes on to encourage them to remain steadfast, another word for faithful, but to remain steadfast in their faith and in God's love in verses 20 through 21. These are the closing exhortations of this epistle. He says, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Those are wonderful exhortations. I want to break each of them down. Let's start with this one. He first, in the first part of verse 20, says, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Now, this is interesting because faith is a gift from God, and yet we can build ourselves up in the most holy faith. I want you to think about it this way. You know, if you if you were at a gym, you were, you were working out at a gym, and you looked over at the weight rack, and you saw all these weights, and you counted them, and you took pictures of them, and you studied them, and you never picked one up, you, you wouldn't make any difference in your overall strength or health. But if you pick them up and actually use them, you might grow in your physical strength. See, spiritual things are like that. You can look at them, you can read about them, you can study them, you can learn them, you can memorize them, you can meditate on them, but until you actually apply them, they don't build you up. Until you actually lift those weights and move, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever in your life. And this was a problem, and this was something that oftentimes happens in the church. And so he says, look, Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. This requires taking personal responsibility. Oh my goodness, personal responsibility? Pastor Tim, this is 2021. Nobody wants personal responsibility. I don't want to go to work. I might catch something. Besides, I'd rather have the government pay me to do nothing all day. It's much more satisfying. Personal responsibility? I want the government to tell me what to do, whether or not to wear a mask, whether or not to get vaccinated, what to do, what not to do. I want everybody to tell me. I don't want to be responsible for myself. You see, that's the world we're living in today. And we have colleges teaching people, unfortunately, to make everyone else responsible for their life and their problems. No, personal responsibility. You are personally responsible for your spiritual life. Don't depend on others for that. 
Don't look to others to carry. I'm a pastor. That doesn't mean I'm responsible for your spiritual life. You're responsible. You are personally responsible for your own spiritual walk with Jesus Christ, your relationship. I'm here to encourage you in that relationship, but you are the one who's responsible. If you jump off the deep end, that is not my fault. Okay? Unless, of course, I push you. But I am not going to do that. I'm encouraging you not to do that. So if you go ahead and do it anyway, I can't take responsibility for that. That is your personal responsibility. This requires working in order to grow spiritually, to grow to spiritual maturity, and not just letting it happen to us. You know how many people go through life spiritually? Just letting things happen to them? What are you going to do today? I don't know. What's going to I don't know. I'm just going to sort of let today happen. I've never been able to do that. You know, I've always been the type A personality. I'm always the person that gets up. I have an agenda. I have a calendar. I have things I need to do. You know, and you get up and you say, okay, I'm going to try to accomplish this today, and maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I'm not going to just let life happen to me. I'll surrender to God. But I know that I am responsible for what happens in my life, where I place myself, what I look at, what I give my heart to, what things I spend my money on, what things I spend my time doing. That's on me. And so Jude is basically saying, look, you have to take personal responsibility. That's why it says, build yourselves up in your most most holy faith. You are responsible for that. Now, you don't save yourself, but you are responsible to apply the lessons that God teaches you to your life. We must actively study God's word, which is why we're here tonight. Amen. And we must faithfully spend time with others in fellowship, which is, again, why we're here. If you just do those two things, can I say that? If you just do those two things, it's kind of like when I say to somebody, Oh, you know, they say to me, I really want to get in shape. And I always tell them, look, it comes down to working out and eating right. You might be able to add sleeping right, right? Sleeping well. But, but let's just say, let's just take those two things. You eat well and you work out. That's a pretty good start, right? But you know how many people struggle with just those two things? It's the same way spiritually. I mean, study God's word and spend time with other Christians. Now, you don't have to come to church to study God's Word. You can do that on your own, but you do need to come to church if you're going to spend time with other Christians. And so what we saw over the last almost two years now is people were able to study the Word. Whether they did or not, I can't say, but I can tell you this. Many people did not spend time in fellowship, and they're suffering for it. You have people who are starved for fellowship. And I see it. I think it's great when we come in here and we spend time together, and and you guys crave it. We all crave it, but for a while there, we didn't have much of it, right? So these are the things we must do if we're going to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We're also called to do this, to pray. You'll find that being a Christian is actually rather simple. (laughs) You know, it's really not complicated, okay? Pray in the Holy Spirit. Notice he goes on to say it this way, and pray in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, pray in the Holy Spirit? Now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, pray in tongues, right? Well, not everyone has the gift of tongues, so it can't mean that. That might be a part of it, but I think it's deeper than that. I think it's more than that. I think it means praying according to God's will as it's revealed through his word. So you're studying God's word, you're building yourself up, and once you know God's word, you begin to pray according to God's word. This requires praying according to God's will as it's revealed through the word, but it also requires us relying on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us in prayer. 
See, as you're praying, the Holy Spirit will give you the wisdom and the understanding how to pray. Have you ever been praying for somebody, and uh, those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit and have the gifts of the Spirit, and you really want that person to be healed, and you're praying for them, oh Lord, and you're about to say, heal them and take away their sickness, and then the Lord says, no, 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 pray differently. Lord, work through their sickness and heal them in your time. That may not sound that different to you, but it actually is. And many times I'll find myself praying that way. I start to pray, oh, Lord, heal them. And I think, wait, 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 wait. God allowed them to become ill. Let me pray that God works through it, delivers them through it in his time. That's just a simple course correction. But so many times as I've been praying for someone, even laying hands on someone to pray, I find, guess what? God directs me in prayer. I think that's a big part of being uh, led and, and of the Holy Spirit in prayer and praying in the Holy Spirit. See, I'm going to mention a few things about prayer, okay? Prayer isn't prayer unless it's directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know what I just said? Prayer isn't prayer unless it's directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So if you're not praying in the Spirit, you're actually not praying at all. I know that sounds a little harsh, but it's true. Oh, you're in our thoughts and in our prayers. But if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't know how to pray. Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit tells us, leads us how to pray and intercedes and makes intercession on our behalf. He's the one that guides us and leads us how to pray. So if you think you know how to pray, you don't know how to pray. What you know how to do is study God's word, be in fellowship, seek God, Submit your heart to the Holy Spirit, and then when you pray, your words and your heart will be guided and instructed by the Holy Spirit who will intercede on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is the person, is the person that will strengthen us to pray when we're weak. Oh, pastor, I can't even pray. The Holy Spirit will strengthen you to pray. He intercedes when we don't know how to pray, and he directs us to pray according to God's will. So pray in the Holy Spirit. Prayer also isn't something that we do occasionally in church or only at prayer meetings or when we pray over a meal or when we close our eyes and fold our hands. And by the way, I always find it interesting when you sit down with little kids and you say, okay, we're going to pray. You're about to eat, right? We're going to pray. They always keep their eyes open. Have you ever noticed they never really close their eyes, which is dangerous because you don't, if you close your eyes and they don't, you don't know what they're up to. But the truth is you can pray with your eyes open. You can pray while you're driving. In fact, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul tells us that you can pray without ceasing. Or if you like this translation, pray at all times or pray always. So it's not something you do occasionally in church. It's actually an attitude that you're in constantly. Now, let me ask you a question. If you had an alarm on your house and you only put it on once in a while, so you like flip the alarm and like, oh, I feel safe, and then you turned it off. The alarm would be useless when it wasn't on because it wouldn't work. And I think most people go about prayer in that way. They say, oh, well, oh, no, well, we need to pray. They flip the switch, and they pray, and they flip it off. I suggest to you, submit this thought to you, maybe you should just leave that on all the time, you know? I know some people like, the, we, Sal and I were talking about thermostats before service. We're talking about how, like, you know, you turn down your thermostat at night and you turn it up and you, we adjust it. We sometimes program it. But, you know, sometimes it's easier to just leave it on so your house is warm. I think praying in the Spirit is something you're always doing. 
I don't think it's something you stop to do or stop doing something else to do. I think it's just an attitude in your heart to pray without ceasing. You're constantly in a state of communication with God. Now, that doesn't mean you're reciting this long Elizabethan prayer. It just means in the moment you're saying, oh, Lord, help me through this. Oh, my goodness, look at this accident. I'm going to be late. Lord, get me there on time. That kind of attitude where you're just constantly in touch with God. That would be praying in the Spirit. It also isn't a formal exercise. People complicate prayer. It's not done for show. It's not a memorized chant. There are many different kinds of prayers, and most are not even requests, by the way. When Jesus' disciples said, teach us how to pray, John taught his disciples how to pray. Why don't you teach us how to pray? And then, of course, he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. But it was really a framework. And in that framework, there were many kinds of prayers. For example... Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. That's adoration. It's communicating our appreciation of God. It's a good way to pray. Thank God. Praise God. Adoration. And by the way, this is easy to remember because it spells out acts, A-C-T-S. Adoration. It's communicating our appreciation of God. There's confession. Forgive us of our sins. As, you know, We forgive those who sin against us confession of sins, admitting our guilt before God. Again, we haven't gotten to any requests yet. Adoration, confession. How about this one? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. That's expressing our gratitude toward God. You haven't even gotten your prayer list yet. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And then you get to supplication. Give us this day our daily bread. That idea of supplication, submitting your requests to God, your needs. By the way, daily bread, no one would argue everyone needs food to survive, right? So this is the framework that Jesus gave his disciples to pray, and I think it's the one that we should follow. And by the way, you'll find that spirit-led prayer isn't about us either. It almost is never about us. In fact, it should be God-centered and others-focused. God-centered, others-focused. How much of the Lord's Prayer, that framework, really had to do with me and my needs? Not much. Give us this day our daily bread. Meditation is a form of prayer. It means to attentively wait on and listen to God. Far too few people do that. Just in a state of listening to God. You know, we pray, Lord, direct me, and then we just go on to something else. No, stop and wait for direction. And then finally, there's intercession, which is, of course, submitting others' needs to God. So I think if you look at prayer this way, and I've kind of mapped it out for you, that's a whole Bible study right there, the acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, and then add to that meditation and intercession, and you'll see that really these things are not that complicated. It has to do with your heart. Okay, so we've talked about building ourselves up in our most holy faith. We've talked about praying in the Holy Spirit. What does he say in verse 21? He says in verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Now this is pretty interesting because if you interpret keep yourselves in the love of God as there's something you need to do to make God love you, then you're missing it. In fact, if you don't believe me, you can go up to verse 1 of this letter where he says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. 
past tense. Past perfect tense. Kept. You are kept by Jesus Christ. So what does he mean when he says, keep yourselves in the love of Jesus Christ? Well, it it can't mean that you're responsible to make God love you because you're kept by Jesus Christ. And God is more than capable of keeping you. So what does it mean? Well, he's calling us and them to keep ourselves in God's love. This requires, this has a lot to do with how you think. This requires believing that we are divinely selected and appointed to receive eternal life. Do you know that? God has chosen you. It requires knowing that we're loved by God the Father and purified and dedicated to him. It's more about what you know than it is about what you do. So, so you think about, oh, I've got to keep myself. So I've got to keep myself in the love of God. You just need to remember God loves you. I think that's really what it means. It requires trusting that we're kept by Jesus Christ and protected and cared for by him. And it requires waiting for Jesus to return to show mercy to his faithful chosen people. As it says there, keep yourself, yourselves, in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ and finally to bring you to eternal life. And it requires expecting Jesus to usher us into his holy presence for all eternity. So keeping yourself in God's love isn't an action. It really is the way you think about God's love. It's how you process the truth that God loves you. It's placing yourself in your mind and in your heart, in your understanding, in the place that God has placed you. Loved by God for all eternity and waiting for his return to show us mercy. Amen? Why do we complicate these things? We're always looking to put burdens on people. Keep yourself in the love of God. There's seven things you have to do to keep yourself in the love of God. No, there's, there's keeping yourself in the love of God because Jesus has kept you there. You need to only recognize that and trust in God. Remain faithful. Okay, now we get to verses 22 through 23. And this is really the last section before he closes out this letter. He challenges them to do something. And, and I want you guys to think about this with me. Because the whole book has really been about the enemies of the faith, contending for the faith, right? That's the theme. There are various degrees to which people have been deceived. And he gives us three examples of levels of deception that people we love and care about can get involved in. And based on the degree and the level of deception that someone has given themselves to and has been entrapped by, It changes the way we deal with them to rescue them from this deception. You know, if someone shows up at the emergency room with a a broken toe, they might not even do anything. They may give you some pain reliever and send you home with some ice. If if someone shows up with their elbow sticking out of their bicep, there's going to be surgery involved. A broken bone is not a broken bone. It depends on how severe the injury is. Well, look at this. He gives them a great outline. And this is really for us to contend for the faith. Okay, we're done talking about, like, keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now we're talking about, okay, what about others? Well, he says it this way. Be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now here he uses analogy, uses metaphor to describe three groups of people. And he uses fire 
as the enemy and what it can do to a person who's exposed to it. So fire would be like the temptation or the deception. And the individual, there are three individuals described here, and they're described very differently. And how to deal with them? Well, that's very different based on the individual. So, for example, let's talk about the first one in verse 22. Be merciful to those who doubt. So we're talking about those that might be Christians who come in and they're doubting their faith. We all have found ourselves there at one point or another. He's challenging the church to rescue as many as they can from the heresies, the apostasy, the deception. But he says it starts with those who are doubting. I like to say it this way as it relates to fire. Those who doubt are playing with fire. I want you to think about it. When you doubt God's faithfulness, you're playing with fire. You strike a match. Now, I I know probably the ladies here don't understand this, but as boys, we're fascinated with fire. Okay? I don't know what it is. There's a little pyro in every one of the little boys that you know. I don't care who they are. They see a flame. They see a fire pit. It's like, ooh, fire. And if you give a little kid, and I hope you don't, pack of matches, they'll go through the whole pack of matches and they'll light them and throw, just the thought of making fire, it's just something exciting. I can speak as having been a little boy, that that was something that was playing with fire. Now here's the thing, all of us did it as kids, but every once in a while someone would play with fire and burn their house down, or light themselves on fire, or burn themselves. You're playing with fire when you doubt. If you play with doubt, oh, I don't know if God loves me. You know, I think God loves everybody but me. You're playing with fire. How do we deal with those that are playing with fire, those that doubt? Be merciful to those who doubt. So mercy, mercy is God's kindness, his love. Uh, there are some within the church that, were, that, that begin to doubt the truths of God's word. And there were some in this church at this time that were beginning to doubt the truths of God's word. They were fascinated by these false teachings already. They were fascinated. They weren't ensnared by the apostasy yet, not just yet, but they were beginning to entertain these thoughts. And of course, he tells us, Jude tells us, the best way to rescue them was to show them mercy and to lovingly lead them back to the truth. Because that person hasn't really gotten burned yet. They're just playing with fire. Lovingly lead them back to the truth. Okay, then we got a second group of people in the first part of verse 23. Snatch others from the fire and save them. Snatch others from the fire and save them. He calls them to snatch others from the fire. These are those that are trapped in the fire. This is the person that played with fire, and now you know what? They've burned themselves. They're trapped. The house is coming down on them, and they can't get out. Notice, snatch them from the fire. There were some within the church that were caught in the deception of these false teachings already. They were ensnared by the apostasy. They weren't consumed yet, but they were in danger of being consumed by this apostasy, and they needed to be rescued. You can be kind to someone who's playing with fire, but someone who's trapped and ensnared in it, someone who is, who is trapped in the fire needs to be, you don't ask for permission to save someone from a burning building. You grab them and you pull them out. And that's the picture that Jude paints for us. So the best way to rescue them was to snatch them out of the fire and save them from the apostasy. And then we get to another group of people, and these are the people that have been burned. These are the people that were burned by the fire. Look, notice it says, To others show mercy, mixed with fear, 
hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. And these are the people that have sort of given themselves over to that apostasy. You have to deal with them differently. They, they're the ones that are burned, that have been burned. There were some within the church that were stained by the corruption of these false teachings. They had sort of bought into some of these apostasies. They were consumed by the apostasies. They weren't completely corrupted yet, but they were well on their way. And he says the best way to rescue them was to fear them. Fear what might happen to them, but fear for them. So to others show mercy mixed with fear. You're very concerned that, that, that they may have damaged their faith. Now, these are metaphor. We're using fire as a metaphor. You know, we're using analogy, but still the point is made. Mercy mixed with fear. Yes, you're showing kindness, but you also have to be fearful because they have, not afraid of them, but fearful for them. They have given themselves over to some very dangerous ways of thinking. Apostasy. Heresy. False teachings. And they could be a danger to themselves and to the church. So you deal with them differently. The best way to rescue them was to fear them and fear for them and to hate their corruption and yet show them mercy. This is what we mean when we say, love the sinner, hate the sin. It's exactly what we mean. Love the person who's been burned, but hate the fire that burned them. Does that make sense? Okay. So that's a lot. And then we close with this in verses 24 through 25. This is the last section, and it's a doxology, which is a high praise. Doxology basically means praise, a high praise. And in these last two verses, Jude commends them, that is the church and those reading the letter, to the glory, majesty, power, and authority of God in high praise. Let's read it, verses 24 to 25, as he closes out this letter. And this is perhaps one of the most beautiful doxologies in all of the Bible. There's a similar one in the book of Romans, but this is perhaps the greatest. Uh, To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That's a beautiful praise. Not much to say except just break it down a little bit. He's talking about to him who is able. Able to do what? Able to keep you from falling into the heretical apostasies and deceptions that were threatening the church and threaten the church today. He is able to keep you from falling. That's why you need to be submitted to God the Holy Spirit. Because you'll hear a voice behind you saying, don't go that way, go this way. This was Jude's primary concern. It was the context of of his statement about God's ability that God could do this work. He's not encouraging them to keep themselves, but rather to keep themselves in God's love. He is able to keep you from falling. So people who read this and say, oh, keep yourself in the love of God, that's your responsibility. They're, they're, They're misinterpreting the word and what it means. Really, he is able to keep you from falling. Amen? And also, what is he also able to do in addition to keep you from falling? He's able to present you before his glorious presence in eternity by the grace of God. See, you don't have to do that. You don't have to clean yourself up and make yourself right and please God by your actions. God has already done that work. He's able to keep you from falling, but he's also able to present you before his glorious presence, notice this, without fault, sinless, 
redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And with great joy. I love that. Let's not forget that. And with great joy. So without fault, he saved us from our sins through his death on the cross and with great joy, for we are the joy that was set before him. And our joy, as, as, the, as the Bible describes it, is unspeakable. Unspeakable. It's a joy unspeakable. You can't even describe it. It's so good. This is the hope that Jude points them to as the reward for keeping themselves in the love of God. If you keep yourself in the love of God, God will keep you from falling and present you before his presence with joy and without fault. And finally, here in the first part of verse uh, 25, he says, To our only God, our Savior. Here you see, God is our Savior because our Savior is our God. To suggest that God is not the Savior is to say that Jesus isn't God. And of course, what does he say? He says, to the only God, our Savior. So is Jesus God? I think you can answer that question for yourself. He wants them to know that we can give God the glory because he has the majesty, the glory, the power, and the authority. You know, when we talk about glory, that's just praise and worship and honor for God. That's what we mean, glorify God. We, We praise, worship, and honor him. When we talk about majesty, we're talking about reverence recognizing his greatness and his divinity. That's how we respond to his glory. When we talk about God's power, that's his supremacy, his omnipotence, his dominion, his might, his strength. We're acknowledging God can do anything and all things. And finally, when we talk about his authority, we're talking about the fact that Christ, our God, has the preeminence, omniscience, that is all-knowing, power, capacity, and jurisdiction and authority. He can do it all, and he has every right to do it all. Amen? So we're saying that about our God. It's true whether we say it or not, but we say it to remind ourselves of how great our God is. That would be an example of worship. Remember, doxology means praise. And all of this is, as it says here, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, he is God and man. He's the mediator between God and man. He's the one that is one with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So, of course, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It says, before all ages, what does that mean? Well, he's the creator, the eternal creator of all things. Before all ages, before the creation, he's God, because he is the creator. And now and forevermore indicates that he's the eternal God, who is, who was, and who will forever be. And all of that comes out loud and clear in Jude's doxology of praise. Finally, The very last word of this book, a word you're well familiar with, amen. Just a couple of notes about the Hebrew word, amen. It was transliterated directly into the Greek of the New Testament. So amen in Hebrew is amen in Greek. And it was then transliterated directly into Latin. So if you're speaking Latin, it's still amen. And even into English today, amen. I know Spanish, it's amen, but it's still amen. Many other languages, in fact, as a result, it is practically a universal word that has been called the best-known word in human speech. Amen. The word is directly related and almost identical to the Hebrew word for believe or faithful. Amam. So when we're saying amen, we say God is faithful, and we believe and trust in him. Amen? 
It has come to mean sure or truly as an expression of absolute trust and confidence. If you trust God, say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this study this evening. We now ask, Lord God, that as we go from this place and continue to fellowship, but as we go from this place, that these things would stay in our hearts, that we would be encouraged to keep ourselves in your love. That is to know and to understand that you love us and that you're able to do all of the things we talked about. And when we say amen, we're saying we believe those things. So, Lord God, as we contend for the faith, may you make us faithful. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.